0: Open your scriptures to Job chapter 40, a couple of chapters, if you go to Psalm 1 and go left, you're almost there. I mean, we're right there at the end of Job. Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, open our hearts for your word today that you have spoken so long ago to that lonely man who was suffering. Help us to readjust our hearts and our minds the way you were doing that so gently and powerfully to Job. Help us learn the lessons that you want us to learn from just gazing at you. In Jesus' name, amen. The iron mining town of Wabush, Canada, was built in the 1960s. And when it was built in the 1960s, it was built for the workers of the mine there. It didn't have a road. You had to get there by plane or by railroad. It wasn't until the 80s, late 80s, that an access road was actually built to give access by car. And that road was built with the terminus being Wabush. So if you wanted to leave Wabush when you got there, you had to turn the car 180 degrees and drive in the opposite direction. Our spiritual life can many times be like that road to Wabush. We reach the end in our life. We reach a terminus and we can go no further. We want if we want to get out of that place that we're in, we have to turn 180 degrees and the only way out is the way in. That's what it means to repent, is to get to that terminus, going no further, turning around, and going in the opposite direction. When we come to the end of ourselves, there's no other road than repentance. Last week, we left Job in Wabush, silent before God. He's been going the wrong way with God for chapter after chapter after chapter. But then, as God reveals himself to Job in chapters 38 and 39, he has learned a lot about himself He's learned that he'd been wrong about a lot of things. Wrong about God. Wrong about life. Wrong about suffering and evil. Wrong about himself. Now it's time for him to turn completely around. To take the road of repentance. And there's no more bitter pill to swallow than when you find that you've been wrong. About what you thought you were so right about. Look with me at chapter 40, starting in verse 6. When the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, he said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase Him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring Him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge you, that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, in his power, in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like cedar, and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, and his limbs like bars of iron. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring him near to the sword. For the mountains yield food to him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him. The willows and the brooks surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident through the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Last week, we again left Job in humbled silence. He was humbled by the omniness of... Of God, if you remember, in 38 and 39. God took him through a tour of the skies and the land and the sea and the cosmos. All the while saying, where were you when I made these? And that brings Job to humbled silence. In chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, you can look there. uh, He says in Job's own words, so... Read really, the New Living Translation, I am nothing. How could I even find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Humbled silence. Humbled silence is a good place to be for the born-again Christian. Before God. That's a good place to be. As Warren Wiersbe states, until we are silent before God, he can't do for us what needs to be done. We have to get to that place. We all need to get to our own wabash. But God is not done with Job. There's more work to be done in Job's hearts, there's more work to be done in our hearts. There's a bitter pill that Job must still take and the pill of admitting what he always thought was right is actually wrong. Isn't that a bitter pill? What you always thought was right, what you were 100% sure was right, all of a sudden is revealed wrong. And that's what God is going to do today with Job. He's going to bring him to that place. He's going to bring us to that place. Through a three-stage pill, first he's going to ask Job a question, then he's going to set up a test, and then he's going to challenge Job. First, the question. The question that God asks is contained in verses 7, 8, and 9. He tells Job to dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? Have you an arm like God? God is asking Job, are you willing to discredit me just so that you can remain right in your own eyes? In other words, are you willing to throw me under the bus so that you can remain right in your own eyes? By the way, This is a core reason why people leave the faith. You want to know why maybe your friend or your neighbor or maybe the person who brought you to Christ is no longer walking with Christ anymore? This is a big reason. People throw God under the bus because they want to remain right. And God asks a key question to Job and it's a question that we all have to ask of ourselves. Do you have an arm like God? That's an underlining verse, if you're Bible markers. Do you have an arm like God? In Eastern culture, men would bear their arms as a a, a sign of strength. They would pull up their robe and just show their arm. By asking this question, God is reminding Job that the world doesn't revolve around him. That's what he's telling us through that verse. The world does not revolve around you. Yahweh is gently nudging Job to understand that the world is way too complex for him to run. There are forces that are too big for him to control. He's gonna bring two before Job that we'll get to in a minute, behemoth and leviathan, but the world is, the forces in the world are just too great for him to to stand up to. Basically, God is rhetorically asking, are you capable of running the world? Are you capable of standing up to the forces that are in the world? That's actually the question that the movie Bruce Almighty is asking. I don't know if you've seen that movie with Jim Carrey, but that is the exact question that is being probed there. In that movie, Jim Carrey plays Bruce Nolan, a self-centered reporter with, with great ambition. And he thinks the world revolves around him. He complains and complains when things don't go his way. He complains to God that things aren't happening the way they should. He he accuses God of being a God who is holding a magnifying glass and he's the ant and he's burning him. God finally gets tired of, of his complaining and he appears to Bruce. And if you see in the movie, you know how it goes. He He assures Bruce that he knows what he's doing but, but Bruce thinks he knows better so he's going to give Bruce all his godly power for a week. You try and run the world. You do it. Bruce accepts but really quickly it starts spinning out of control. Really quickly you see that Bruce finds out that he does not have what it takes. And then through you know comedy they show this At one point, he begins to hear voices in his head that are the prayers of the world. And so he sits down at his computer, and all the prayer requests are on his computer. 1,527,503 prayer requests. And so he, he thinks of a couple ways to do it, but he uses super speed to answer all of the prayer requests in a matter of minutes. And he sits back, and he thinks it's all done, and he looks at his inbox, and there's more than 3 million more. Bruce Almighty is actually posing the question, the same question God does here. Do you have an arm like God? Can you control the world like this? Can you met out justice perfectly like I do? Can you manage the universe? And the the point is that he's going over and over this so that we get to the point where we say, no, of course I can't. That's where he wants Job to get to. It's impossible. But by our questions that we ask God, many times, in difficult circumstances, when things aren't going our way, when we get in that slough of thinking that the world revolves around us, we ask a lot of the same questions Job asks. Why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? Why don't you just snap your fingers? This isn't fair, Lord. Why, don't, why isn't there any justice? I've served you all these years, and now this? I've given my life to you, and now this? If you're all powerful and good, God, you take it away. We, in those, in many other ways that we ask those why questions, we are putting ourselves in the same place, Job. He thinks he's right in asking those questions. These are all born out of a pride of things, thinking God isn't running things all that well. That we could do better we in our own way are becoming Bruce Almighty. Just like the movie. Just like the movie, God proposes a test. That's what we see in verses 10, 11, 12, 13 and 14. That's why he there's that, that space there in your Bible. There's a different thought unit. God is saying, Okay, Job, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourselves with glory and splendor. Uh, what What if I gave you all my power? How would you handle it? Like Bruce Almighty, he proposes Job take the place of God for a time. Run the world. He goes into 11, 12, and 13. Can you met out justice perfectly? Can you met out justice like me? Can you be perfectly balanced and perfectly loving? I think God zeroes in on one of the main points, main themes of the book of Job. Because that Job has been complaining the whole time. He thinks he's suffering unjustly. And Job has grown proud in that suffering. As we can. We grow proud in our suffering. He becomes a righteous sufferer. And God needs to deal with that pride in Job. Just like he needs to deal with that pride in us. Ray Stedman writes... This is, in fact, the problem that God is dealing with in Job's own heart. Though Job doesn't know it yet. And that's the sneaky thing about pride. He goes on and says, Job is not an evil man. He is an honest and upright man. He loves the Lord. But he does have a pride problem. Pride is sneaky. Pride is sneaky. We don't see it many times. It blinds us. Isn't it strange that we can say you can become proud in your suffering? Have you ever been there? It's called martyrdom. It's called a martyrdom prop. You can become proud in your suffering. And that's where Job was. Even the best and most mature Christians struggle with this, brothers and sisters. Pride is sneaky. It can even look, act, taste like humility. A church once gave their pastor a medal for humility, but they had to take it away because he wore it. (laughs) Right? It's sneaky. like trying to pin Jell-O to a wall and Job still doesn't see it. He's silent but he's not repentant yet. There's a difference. So God gives Job a third part of the bitter pill in the form of a challenge. Here God describes two monstrous creatures behemoth in chapter 40, and Leviathan in chapter 41. Different opinions on this abound. I could have spent most of the sermon giving you what different people think about what these two great creatures are. I mean, certainly the most the, the plain reading would be something like a hippo behemoth, and something like a, a large fish or a crocodile. Leviathan, some believe they're two extinct animals, maybe dinosaurs, just maybe two mythological, untamable beasts, on and on. But I think there's another trans interpretation that I think is, is apt, and that is the, these two terribly powerful, monstrous creatures are symbolic of two other things. Let's look at them together. In verses 15 through 24 we're introduced to Behemoth. The name actually translates into something like super beast. This terrible powerful beast. His bones are tubes of bronze, we read, his limbs bars like iron. No one can catch it off guard or put a ring in his nose and lead it away. Powerful, all these images of power. It's described in verses 20 through 22 as always hungry consuming the food of the mountains. Yet, in verse 19, we read, He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Meaning, however terrible and powerful this beast is, whatever this is, God has authority over it. Let him who made it bring it near, bring the sword to its neck. God is able to subdue it. God is able to put it in his place. God is able to kill this thing. This chapter, in many ways, is the heart of the book. God is personifying here, I think, evil or death, or maybe more to Job's situation. He's personifying suffering. This behemoth of suffering. God is... Answering Job's central question of righteous suffering, what theologians call theodicy, the problem of suffering. What it came up in Sunday school. How do you answer all the suffering in the world? Job demanded over and over, Vindicate me, bring me justice, I'm suffering justly. Why, God? Tell me why? That's the question we ask. That's one of probably two or three that keep many people from the faith. If you've done any kind of sharing of your faith at all, at all, you'll run into this in the second or third or fourth person that you share Christ with. Okay, if your God is so good like you say he is, explain to me this. The question Rabbi Kushner wrote his best-selling novel centers around this, when bad things happen to good people. That's the question. Why would God allow dot dot dot? We ask those questions too. And if you're not, you're not going very deep with the Lord. Yeah, I got to ask these questions. Why would God allow an earthquake in Turkey? Why would God allow a tsunami in India and 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 in Japan? Why would God allow Syria? Why would God allow? World War II. Why would God allow terminal pancreatic cancer to a faithful pastor in Millinocket, Maine? The big and the small, whatever the suffering is, we ask, Why, God? We want answers. That's what Job has been demanding. We want logic. We want reason. We want complete understanding. That's what we're asking. God, give me complete understanding of this. What's that sound like? Sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I want complete understanding. Oh, there's a tree that I'm told not to eat of but it will give me the knowledge of good and evil. And they ate. Because they didn't want any mystery. They don't want anything veiled. They don't want anything unexplained, anything obscured. They want to know everything. That is still our hearts, brothers and sisters. We want to know everything. And when we bump up against God, who says, here and no further, we don't like it. God knew in the garden we couldn't handle it. God knows Job can't handle it. And God knows we can't handle it. That knowledge, though seemingly harmless, so seemingly good of everything, good and evil? God, tell me why this suffering? Tell me everything? That knowledge seems good? God knows it harms us because it leads to pride. It leads to pride, it leads to less and less trust in God. In a way, Christian growth is on a trajectory back to the Garden of Eden. From don't know, don't trust, back to don't know, I'll trust. From don't know, don't trust, back to don't know, I'll trust you. That's the trajectory. That's the mature trajectory of a believer. It's not saying I'm putting my brain on a, on, a, on, a, on a shelf. No, that's not what it says. Push in. Ask the hard questions. But when you get to a place where he goes, you can't fully understand this because your minds are too small. You have to go, okay, I trust you. I trust you. It's too great for me. As a matter of fact, that sounds a lot like Job's response in 41, isn't it? It's too great for me. Too much. I get it. I read it for our call to worship this morning. And that's what God is trying to do here, to disciple us and Job in that trajectory. Don't know, but I'll trust you in my suffering. Job doesn't know the reason. But he has to trust. John doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't know the outcome. But he knows God's voice. Pastor John Owachukwa tells about a time he was watching the 2021 NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game between Baylor and Gonzaga on his computer. And he writes this. I was watching the game intently, texting my friends as I watched. There I came to a time when I realized there was a significant lag in my internet connection. The announcer's voice would say, he made the shot. But on the screen, the guy would still be dribbling down the court. And then he would shoot and it would go in. I was so anxious of not missing any of the game and wanting my team to win that I didn't bother to log back out and back in to fix it. I just let the lag stay there. And that, he says, is when something interesting happened. He said, I found myself listening to the announcer's voice more than what I saw on the screen. You know why? Because I trusted the announcer's voice. I didn't think he was going to lie. I knew that his word preceded exactly what would happen. I knew that every single thing he said would occur. So I let him speak, and I waited. I didn't worry. And he writes this I celebrated when he spoke, not what I saw. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly. Where the Lord wants us. Not looking at our circumstances, but listening to His voice. Listening to His voice when He says, I've got this behemoth of suffering under control. Don't worry, I've got it. I care about you more than anything. Have your best in mind. We've got to listen to the voice and not what we see. God wants us to celebrate his voice, not what we see. God next asks Job to consider the Leviathan. The Leviathan in chapter forty one. There's a great scene in the movie Jaws. Anybody, anybody love Jaws? There's a great scene there where a, a bounty is put on the killer shark's head and all these people go out to try and catch the shark and there's this one guy who takes his his wife's uh sunday roast if you remember this and he puts a big hook in it and he attaches the hook to a inner tube and he to a chain and he attaches the chain to the dock and he throws the roast and the inner tube out at night and he sits gets a chair and he's sitting there fishing for this great white shark and as he waits You see the inner tube. You know, Bob, the bait is being taken. And then, all of a sudden, the shark takes it and starts to run with it. And because how powerful this shark is, he pulls the dock right off its moorings and drags the fisherman out to sea with him. Do you remember that? That's the picture that God is painting in the beginning of chapter 41 a powerful dangerous untamable unkillable man-hating creature and Job is sitting on the dock fishing for him and if you look there God asks can you draw a leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord can you put a rope in his nose or a piece pierce his jaw with a hook God goes on to describe Leviathan in terrifying fashion, even more so than behemoth. His back is like shields, it says in verse 15. His mouth is spewing flame, verse 19. His heart is like stone, verse 24. No weapons can hurt him, verses 26, 27, 28. A creature without fear, verse 29. A king of the sons of pride, verse 34. I think this is much more than a crocodile. Elsewhere in Scripture, Leviathan is mentioned and is described as a twisting servant, a dragon of the sea in Isaiah 27, the great enemy of God in Psalm 74. I mean, with all this evidence, I think that what we're actually, he's actually describing here is the great enemy of God, Satan himself. He, and he's challenging Job. Can you stand up to Satan? Can you deal with Satan? Can you contain him? Can you subdue him? Once again, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Of course not. And we have to understand this too. Satan is awe-inspiringly powerful. Awe-inspiringly powerful. That is the picture that, that Scripture paints of Satan. Jesus in, in John twelve thirty one calls him the ruler of this world. Paul in Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. John in Revelation 12 describes him as a great red dragon with seven crowned heads and ten horns, authority, with a tail that sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky with a sweep. Satan is much, much more powerful than many of us give him credit for. We think we have the magic words when we say, get behind me, Satan. And we use them like Harry Potter magic. Foolish. Mark Twain wrote, we may not pay Satan reverence, for that would be indiscreet he's not a christian but we can at least respect his talents a person who has for untold centuries maintained an imposing position of spiritual head of four fifths of the human race and the political head of the whole of it we must be be granted the possession must be granted the possession of executive abilities of the loftiest order he writes and god is saying through this chapter to job you cannot begin to approach and subdue this man. But I can. That's the truth. You see, the whole book of Job foreshadows another sufferer, isn't it? Jesus. The whole book foreshadows Jesus. Jesus. Who lost almost everything to come to earth. All the majesty, all the honor, all the glory he gave up to come to earth. Jesus endured terrible rejection like Job. Rejection by his family. Rejection by his people. Rejection by his hometown. You remember when he took them up to the hilltop and they were about to throw him off? Rejection by the, the, the people that should have known him the best, the religious elite. Rejection by his friends, the ones who stayed with him for three years and fled. Jesus suffered terribly like Job, no place to lay his head, mocked and beaten by the guards, nailed to a cross, pierced in the side, mocked, spit upon, jeered. He went further than Job and died an ignominious death, taking it all for us. Taking all the rejection, all the suffering, all the death that we so deserve in his body. And he rose three days later, and this is the key, to defeat suffering and Satan. To defeat suffering and Satan. The two things that God is showing, Job. See, we can't defeat suffering We can't defeat that behemoth, but God can. God can in our life. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we can celebrate God's voice when he says, for I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory to come. Do you feel the lag? Do you hear the voice? Are you listening to the voice and not the circumstances? Listen to it again, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. Do you feel the lag? Are you hearing the voice and not the circumstances? Ray Steadman writes, years ago I stayed in a home and I asked a nine-year-old boy there, what do you want to be when you grow up? Usually you get the standard answers, but I was amazed at his. I'll never forget it. He said, I want to be a returned missionary. He didn't want to be just a missionary. He wanted to be a returned missionary. That's one who's been through it all. And has the perspective. Because of what Jesus did, our suffering is put into perspective, brothers and sisters. We can have and we can be that return missionary who thinks of this as slight and momentary troubles. No matter what you're in, you can have that because of what Jesus did. Lastly, we can't possibly stand up to that Leviathan, Satan. Can't possibly do it. You're foolish if you think you can. But Christ did. Our public reading today in Hebrews said, By Jesus' death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery because of their fear of death. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has defeated Satan. Steve Wedgworth writes from the Gospel Coalition, Satan hasn't yet been so utterly destroyed or defanged that he can't do battle with a believer. But he cannot hurt us spiritually Or bring a successful charge against us. We are now free to wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil, knowing that we will get the victory. In the words of John Devant, those who are vanquished are always more angry than powerful. That's the truth. That's Satan. He's more angry than powerful. This is what we need to realize, brothers and sisters. We can't possibly stand up to the Leviathan. But Jesus did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for the encouragement that you give us through it. Thank you for the rest and the peace that we can actually go through suffering, listening to your voice and not watching the circumstances around us knowing that we do struggle against those spiritual forces of evil, but that you have defanged and defeated them. Help us to walk through life, walk through the circumstances that we are in right now, in that manner, being returned missionaries. In Jesus' name, amen.